Chapter Eleven of Cherry Ames Island Nurse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Cherry Ames Island Nurse by Helen Wells. The Storm. The waitress had told Cherry to watch out the window for the arrival of the ferry boat. You'll see a bright light with fairy on it up over the wharf where Captain Rab always moors. He switches it on as soon as he comes in. At ten minutes to three, Cherry saw the heron leave the wharf and head north in the direction of Balfour Island. At five minutes to three, the sign fairy lighted up. Gathering her shopping bags and parcels, Cherry tore out of the restaurant and down the wharf. Ah, there you are, Captain Rab said, helping her aboard. I was hoping you would be along to calm the helm for me on the way back. I was hoping you would be along to calm the helm for me on the way back. He directed her toward the wheelhouse, telling her, There'll no be many on this trip, so we'll be pushing off soon. Within half an hour, five passengers sprinted aboard and ducked into the cabin like homing pigeons. At twenty minutes to four, when no more passengers showed up, Captain Rab set out. Cherry was to remember for a long time the rough passage from St. John's to Balfour Harbor. Certainly she had never seen so much sea so close before. The sandy Fergus plunged and wallowed and rolled. Cherry looked out the wheelhouse window and they seemed to be hedged in by waves that broke frothing over the bows. "'Told you we'd catch it,' remarked Captain Rab. "'Said so this morning before it came over the radio.' "'We seem to be in the middle of the storm,' said Cherry. "'Oh, no,' the captain answered. "'We're sailing ahead of it. "'She's coming up the coast instead of blowing out to sea, "'as the weatherman predicted earlier, "'favoring us with a taste of foul weather.' "'To all outward appearance, Captain Rab was not particularly concerned. "'He concentrated on the sea ahead and steered the vessel. "'There were marker buoys to indicate the channel, "'and whistling buoys crying, a hoo-hoo warning to stay away from rocks and reefs. The rain fell harder and the wind rose. The gleam of the boat's lights caught the flight of the spray. Lightning flickered and thunder rumbled off in the distance. Inside the wheelhouse the radio blurted, predicting the course of the storm, reporting damage left in her wake, warning boats and ships to get out of the track of the high wind, telling of ships in danger, distress, or believed lost. The spell of the storm had fallen upon Cherry. She was absorbed by it. For a while she gave all her attention to the angry waters, the noise, and the rolling boat. Once she spoke to ask if Captain Rab knew a Mr. James Broderick. Know him by sight and reputation, the captain answered. Snatches companies the way a jager snatches fish from gulls and turns. Shutting out the storm, she gave herself over to her thoughts. The experience in the coffee shop had been puzzling. What did old Jock, little Joe Tweed, Jerry Ives, and James Broderick have to do with each other? Cherry asked herself. They probably don't have any connection at all, she chided herself. I'm letting my imagination run away with itself. It doesn't seem likely that old Jock and Tweed could have any mutual interests. Of course, old Jock did go aboard little Joe's boat. I wonder why he did that. 
Cherry was startled by a sudden pitch of the boat that almost tossed her off the window bench on which she was sitting. Captain Rab grunted and swung the helm to head the boat again into the wind. Cherry felt a shiver of fear as the sandy Fergus labored on against the wind, shaken by the waves and creaking in all her timbers. The calm face and unruffled manner of Captain Rab was wonderfully reassuring, however, and she pushed her fear aside. Before long the waves became less violent, and Cherry could make out the shape of the bay at Balfour Island. When they entered the harbour she realized the water seemed less wild only in relation to those through which they had just passed. The waves were rolling in enormous swells and pounding upon the beach. With difficulty Captain Rab brought the ferryboat alongside the wharf and got her safely moored. The five passengers scuttled ashore. "'There's Smith come to fetch you,' the captain said to Cherry. Cherry looked where he pointed and saw the Barclay chauffeur, with head bent to the wind, running toward them. Smith took her bag and bundles and gave her a raincoat, which she drew over her head and about her like a shawl. She called good-bye to Captain Rab and ran with Smith to the car. Settled inside the Rolls-Royce, Cherry looked out on the empty streets. People had shut themselves indoors, and the village appeared deserted. The harbor was filled with vessels straining at their moorings, but she did not see the heron among them. At Barclay House she found Sir Ian, the only member of the family at home. Meg was at the hospital, for there had already been several casualties, and she had gone to help the doctor and Bess Cowan, the nurse. Lloyd was still at the mines. When Higgins let Cherry in, Sir Ian called out to her from the drawing-room, that you, Cherry? You are just in time for tea. That you, Cherry? That you, Cherry? You are just in time for tea. Cherry joined Sir Ian in front of the window where the tea-table had been placed, so he could watch the storm. He had the radio on to get the latest reports on its progress. The storm was expected to reach its greatest force on Balfour sometime that night before it blew out to sea. It had been losing strength as it travelled overland, and was averaging about twelve miles an hour, but inhabitants were warned to take every precaution to ensure the safety of life and the protection of property. Cherry had never seen Sir Ian when he was calmer than he was right then. He was not worried in the least. In fact, she got the feeling that the storm was having a good effect on him, as absurd as that might sound. He drank his tea and spread thin slices of white bread with unsalted butter, in complete tranquillity. But his eyes were shining and alert to every nuance of the wind and rain, and the reports over the radio claimed his attention. "'Remove swinging signs from storefronts,' the announcer intoned. "'Brace sizable glass areas against wind pressure with stout boards. Take in ash cans, furniture from porches and gardens.' and other movable objects. They are dangerous hazards when blown about by the gale. I was expecting a visitor this evening, Sir Ian said when the announcer had completed the latest news bulletin. It's not likely he'll arrive for a day or two unless he rides the wind. He heaved a rumbling sigh and continued, I love a storm. It's a wonderfully dramatic thing, a storm. Man may be dwarfed by a hurricane or typhoon, 
but he's also made great by his battle against great odds. Through the night and in the darkness I think of the lighthouse at Carse Point, flashing out its beam against the storm, of how the radio beacons reach out to sea. Sir Ian sat a while longer with Cherry, watching and enjoying the wild scene outside. Then he said, I think I'm tired, lass, like to lie down a bit. With Cherry beside him, he went slowly upstairs. You needn't be afraid in this house, he told her on the way up. It's solid as rock, withstood the tempests for two hundred years. Years ago my father and I liked to sit in the tower with a storm raging all round. From there we could watch the whole splendor of land and sea and sky. Cherry saw that Sir Ian was comfortable, then went to her own room to put away her purchases and change into her uniform. I wonder if the visitor Sir Ian expected was Mr. Broderick, she suddenly thought. Perhaps Jerry Ives was going to fly his boss over, but the storm held them up. She was disappointed not to have seen Meg and Lloyd, to tell them about her trip to St. John's. At eight o'clock there was a knock on her door. Cherry rushed to open it, expecting to see Meg, but it was Nora, the maid, to tell her that Miss Meg had called to say that neither she nor Lloyd would be home until later. I was to explain that they're engaged with the volunteers, Nora said, and to tell Tess and Higgins not to hold back dinner for them. The maid shook her head. I fear this is one of the wild ones and sure to cause harm on land and sea. Cherry interpreted wild ones as referring to storms, and agreed with Nora heartily that this one undoubtedly was wild. She told Nora that she and Sir Ian would be down to dinner in a few minutes, and the maid left. After his rest, Sir Ian was almost chipper during the evening meal. Cherry's mood rose to match his, and they were quite animated, laughing and talking. Sir Ian took, as a matter of course, Meg's and Lloyd's work with the volunteers, of whom Nora had spoken earlier. Sir Ian explained that it was a voluntary organization composed of various groups of men and women who had specific jobs to do in any emergency, such as a fire, storm, or flood. There was a fire brigade, an ambulance corps, and so on, as well as lookouts stationed at intervals along the shore to aid the coast guardmen who were on duty at Carse Point Lighthouse. I regret I cannot be with them, Sir Ian told Cherry. "'Tis the responsibility of a Barclay to be working with the others when there's trouble. For an hour after dinner, they listened to the news broadcasts. The course of the storm remained unchanged. Before they went upstairs to bed, Nora brought in some candles. "'The electricity is not such a certainty that these may not come in handy,' Nora said, giving each of them several large candles. Sir Ian grinned. "'Why, Nora, these are enough to last for days,' he said." "'You had best keep them,' she cautioned. "'There's no telling once the lights go off when they'll come on again.' "'Nora always expects the worst,' Sir Ian said to Cherry, and laughed. "'It's her dour Scottish nature to get her pleasure out of looking on the dark side of things.' Cherry could not sleep with all the turmoil outside. The wind clamored around the house, and the rain battered at the windows furiously. She doubted that Meg or Lloyd would even get home that night.' Since she was so restless, this seemed like a good time to try to find the secret journal by herself. She would go up to the tower. 
Just in case Meg did return and might want to see her, Cherry left a note on Meg's dressing table. Dear Meg, she wrote, I took your suggestion and have gone to the tower room to look for the secret journal, Cherry. Then, fully armed with flashlight, candles, and matches, Cherry went to the east end of the hall. She lifted the tapestry that covered the wall and came at once upon the ironwork door. Playing her light up and down, she located the switch, flicked it on, and the room beyond the iron lattice door became bright. She could see stairs along the opposite wall leading upward. There was an iron ring handle. Cherry pulled. The door opened and she found herself in a room with slit-like windows. There were lights over the stairs and she mounted them briskly. She reached the next room above, which was on a level with the third floor of the house. The staircase continued upward to another room. Now came the spiral staircase to the tower. It had narrow steps winding up to a door. Keeping close to the wall, Cherry climbed the circular stairs by the light of a chandelier in the ceiling over the stairwell. The switch that she had turned on beside the ironwork door on the second floor of the house evidently controlled all the lights, although she did notice other switches at the foot of each set of stairs. At last she stood before the heavy oak door at the top of the tower. She turned the knob and the door swung open with a creak of rusty hinges. Beyond was darkness except for the patch of light in front of the doorway and flashes of lightning, which brightened for an instant the tower room. With the wind driving the rain against the windows, which were high and wide, and the thunder crashing, the place was altogether eerie. Cherry hesitated before stepping inside, as a chill of fear seemed to envelop her. She shook it off. A flicker of lightning revealed a chandelier hanging from a ceiling beam. Running her hand along the inside wall near the door, Cherry found an electric switch and the place was at once filled with a pale light. As soon as she crossed the threshold, she felt as if she had entered the long-ago past. The only modern note in the place was the electric light. Otherwise, the room looked as though it had been lifted out of an ancient castle. Three of the walls of the large square room were panelled with oak. A stone fireplace almost filled the fourth wall, and over the mantel carved in the stone were the crest of the Barclays and the legend, All nature hath a tongue, e'en the stones do speak if ye have ears to hear. There were chairs with high backs, armchairs of wood and leather flanking the hearth, tables of dark wood and shelves filled with books. A cupboard was set into one wall, and an enormous desk, scarred and stained, had a long high top composed of little square drawers, like a spice cabinet, or the shelves of an old apothecary shop. There were endless objects for her to admire as she walked about, bronze busts of Socrates and several early Greek philosophers, Thales, Heraclitus, Democritus, with badly tarnished nameplates. There was a little statue of a rugged horse whose nameplate read, Sawney Bean, our Galloway Nag. But most amazing of all were the rocks, scattered everywhere about on the surfaces of tables, tops of shelves, the deep sills of the tall windows, 
were rocks of all shapes, sizes, and colors. Cherry turned her attention to the fireplace. In the huge cavern was a tiny little furnace and oven, such as an earlier chemist might have used for melting metals and other chemical cooking. The flagstone hearth was discolored and roughened from his experiments. Poking about among the many fascinating objects, Cherry had almost forgotten why she was up in the tower. She had to have some method of search if she expected to find whether or not the secret journal was there. I'll start with the desk, she thought, and work my way around the room. On the table, silver candelabra, now tarnished black, held tall, dusty candles. The chandelier overhead was the only electric light, apparently, and from the high ceiling its glow was too faint to work by. She got out her matches and started to walk to the table to light the candelabra, when the electric lights began to flicker and then went out. The lines were down or there had been a failure at the power plant. In any event, Nora's warning had been timely, and Cherry was grateful to have plenty of matches and candles. For a moment she was in complete darkness. Not even a flash of lightning etched the blackness of the tower room. The storm outside raged boisterously, but in a momentary lull she heard the whispering shuffle of footsteps on the stairs. There was something odd about the steps that made her think they belonged to neither Meg nor Lloyd. The person on the spiral stairway, climbing up, would appear at any minute. She became icy cold with unreasonable fear. Her eye caught a glimmer of light outside the door. "'Who's there?' Cherry demanded sharply. Suddenly a small dark figure in seaman's oilskins, with a flickering candle held high in one hand, stood in the doorway. Wet glistened on his black slicker and his sou'wester. In his other hand he carried a bundle wrapped in tarpaulin. "'Who are you?' Cherry asked, with a breath of relief. "'It's only me, Tammy,' replied the boy. "'Tammy Cameron.'" End of chapter 11